What's up, family? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, and on this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to my good friend, Mr. Mark Sisson. Mark is the best-selling author of numerous uh, keto-related books, including The Keto Reset Diet, and his newest book just came out. It's called Keto for Life. He also is a former marathoner and fourth-place Hawaii Ironman triathlete, and he also sits at the helm of one of my favorite condiment companies, Primal Kitchen. They make all kinds of uh, dressings and condiments like ketchup that don't have any unhealthy oils. In fact, uh, the primary oil that they use is avocado oil and never any added sugar. So I'm a huge fan of this guy. He really knows his stuff. He's one of he's he's really an icon in the fitness industry, and I'm excited for you to get uh, to know him over the course of the next hour. But before we dive in, if you haven't already heard, I have a new book coming out on March 17th called The Genius Life. It would mean the world to me if you went over to GeniusLifeBook.com to support and pre-order. I can't tell you how important pre-orders are, which tell my publisher that there's a demand for my work. It supports me and this podcast in a huge way. And just for pre-ordering and registering at GeniusLifeBook.com, I'm going to send you epic bonuses, including a signed book plate if you're one of the first 1,000 to pre-order. Now, The Genius Life isn't just another diet book. It's a full 360-degree guide to living the genius life. Get ready for powerful tools to fight frailty and make your body stronger. You'll discover how to lose fat without counting calories or obsessing over carbs or fat. I'll reveal the simple tricks to become more resilient to stress and find out how to detox common industrial chemicals that could be zapping your energy without any required supplements. And that is just scratching the surface, my friends. I'm so proud of this book and I've poured a ton of love into it. Celebrate the launch of The Genius Life with me by pre-ordering now. It's a small investment to make, but one that will pay huge dividends in terms of how you feel, how you age, and even how you look. Head to GeniusLifeBook.com now and pre-order. Before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show, and that is Four Sigmatic. I'm a huge fan of Four Sigmatic because they infuse all of their products, which range from coffees to elixirs to uh, some really delicious lattes, some of which in incorporate matcha, with quote-unquote medicinal mushrooms, ranging from cordyceps to reishi to chaga to lion's mane. And I personally am a huge fan of lion's mane because some studies have suggested that li the lion's mane mushroom possesses cognitive boosting um, abilities. And so I like to integrate their lion's mane uh, into my coffee in the morning, which they make easy either via their instant organic coffee packets or their ground coffee that incorporates lion's mane that you could just throw in your coffee maker. And if you're wondering whether or not uh, their coffees taste like mushrooms, they don't. They taste just like normal coffee, but they integrate these um, powerful uh, medicinal mushrooms that have been used in ancient um, Chinese medicine for eons. If you'd like to give anything that Four Sigmatic produces a try, all you got to do is head over to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off of everything uh, in their online store. Again, that's foursigmatic.com slash max or promo code max. I'm a huge fan of anything that they make incorporating lion's mane. I also love their reishi, which sometimes I'll drink before bed. Um, and, uh, and yeah, great company and grateful to have them as a sponsor of The Genius Life. Now, I'm really excited to dive into this chat with Mr. Mark Sisson. As I mentioned, he is a brilliant guy, and I'm pumped for you to hear what he has to say. Over the past week, got lots of great new reviews for the show on iTunes, which I always appreciate, like this one from Layla's Dog Mom. She wrote, 
Always interesting yet laid back. I love this podcast. Max has a very laid back approach, which makes listening easy and enjoyable. I've learned so much from him and his guests. Well, thank you so much, Layla. That means the world to me. I'm glad you're picking up what I'm putting down. And to all you guys out there who have left uh, a rating or review, I see you. I appreciate you. We have 1.8 thousand ratings. Most of them are five-star ratings on iTunes, which is amazing. Let's try to get to 2K, shall we? If you haven't yet left a rating or review for the show on iTunes, it is easy peasy. All you got to do is head over to um, iTunes or wherever you are listening to the show and click that five-star rating. Hopefully, I've earned it. And if not, let me know what I could be doing to improve the show. I... uh, I'm always happy to iterate, and I've got some really big plans in store for the show. I hope this year to start doing um, video, and uh, I think at a certain point I'm going to bring in some fancy intro music, uh, so we'll see how that goes. But in any case, I appreciate you and, and really value that you lend me your time and attention week after week, which, you know, time and attention, it's our most valuable resource, you guys. So again, thank you. And now without further ado, here is Mr. Mark Sisson. And we are rolling. Mr. Mark Sisson, what's up, brother? Hey, Max, long time no see, pal. I know. Well, ever since you moved to Miami and you left the, you know, you you left the best coast, it's, um, it's, you know, I miss you. What can I say? I left those I left those cold environs of Southern California. <laughs> I know. How, how's Miami been treating you? You know, I, I, I love that city because I went to University of Miami. So I've spent a lot of time in Miami. I love it. I, I you know, I, I had uh, no real prior experience living uh, here other than a week vacation once a year. You know, and uh, when we made the move two years ago, it's been a little bit over two years now. Uh, it was, um, you know, with certain expectations and, and I think Miami Beach has exceeded, has exceeded all my expectations. It is, um, well, first of all, the water is 20, 20 degrees warmer, you know, all the time. And so for a guy who likes to go stand up paddling and hang out in the water and, and do some e-foiling and stuff like that, that was, that's great. Um, I'm on the beach and I got to tell you, I've discovered this new uh, sport fat biking. I don't know if you've heard of it, but these, you know, these, uh, mountain bikes that have four and a half inch wide tires on them, uh, that go in the sand. And so I can ride 10 miles up the sand on the beach, uh, and get a fabulous workout and get my vitamin D and, uh, you know, check out the scenery. That's spectacular. And then I've, and then I've found a great group of people to play ultimate Frisbee with here. So I've got a, a, a regular weekly ultimate game, and then, you know, I live, I don't know, 20, uh, th- th- a three minute walk from 20 different great restaurants. So, um, you know, I own a great gym and my wife enjoys it here. And uh, our facility has a, uh, a sauna, a cold plunge and a jacuzzi so I can do five a day. I mean, it's like being in summer camp every single day. I love it. That is amazing. I'm so jealous of the cold plunge and the sauna. Those are my two favorite, I mean, outside of like exercise, my two favorite, uh, you know, healing modalities. And it's it's kind of ironic that L.A., you know, you think of L.A. as being this wellness epicenter, but it's actually pretty hard to find a good sauna um, or good cold plunge for that matter in Los Angeles. Or, or to find them together, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, because we, you know, we, we, um, although we don't have co-ed facilities here, my wife goes down to the women's, you know, area and I go down to the men's area. And then we, you know, we sort of, um, around six, six thirty every night we do this little fire and ice thing. And, and then that 
kind of get you prepared, you know, re- relaxed for the, the end of the day and prepared for a nice evening dinner or whatever. It's like a great part of our routine that we've incorporated now. It's so great. I mean, I, those are my probably two of my favorite things in life to do. I mean, other uh-huh. than eating good food, you know, having sex whenever that opportunity arises. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, exercise, yeah. Sauna and cold plunge are, too, I, I just, I can't get enough. Yeah, so anyway, that's my that's my um, short list of things that uh, have attracted me to Miami Beach and, and, and really made me um, quite happy with the decision to have moved here. Uh, and yeah, you know, we have family back in LA and I miss our, our family. And you know, my, I think, you know, that Devin, our daughter, just delivered our grandchild, JJ, four months ago. So now we have sort of more reason to go back and forth and visit. Um, but, you know, on balance, I'm very, very happy being in Miami Beach. Well, uh, congrats on the new member of the family and on the move as well. I'm excited to talk about your new book, Keto for Life. This is super exciting. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, I know you're, you're a newly minted New York Times bestselling author. You've got, you're doing all this amazing stuff. And I consider you to be one of the most brilliant guys in the health and wellness space. So I'm super excited to talk to you about your, you know, current uh, views on keto, on diet in general, where your thinking has evolved. Um, sure. And uh, and yeah, so I mean, I guess let's just start out. Are you are you keto right now? What's your current like your your current diet like? So yeah, I'd say yes, mostly. Uh, but you know, I I uh, coined this phrase metabolic flexibility. Well, I didn't coin it, but I I, I think I popularized it with Rob Wolf uh, starting about five or six years ago. But it's basically this notion that uh, really what you're after uh, as a as a health goal isn't just to be burning fat all the time and isn't, you know, just to be uh, generating copious amounts of ketones. It's to be able to extract energy from whatever substrate is available at the time and do so with efficiency and without feeling uh, some negative aspect of having transitioned from one fuel to another. So metabolically flexible people are able to extract energy from fat that they stored on their body or fat that they've eaten on their plate, from carbohydrate that they've eaten on their plate, from glycose, glycogen in their muscles, glucose in their bloodstream, from uh, ketones that their liver produces. Uh, and, and so they're, they're flexible, their metabolism is flexible enough to, to be able to rotate in and among these fuels based on the uh, physical requirements at the time and, and the body's requirements, uh, and to do so with, with ease and grace and not experiencing the so-called dreaded keto flu or the, you know, or the uh, whatever sort of malaise or low blood sugar accompanies um, swings in and out of, uh, you know, high glucose, low glucose. Metabolically flexible people um, can go long periods of time without eating if they choose or if they have to. Uh, And they can eat a wider range of foods on a regular basis uh, and not have to stay in a ketogenic state. So to answer your question, I'm mostly keto now. I mean, uh, I'll go uh, three meals in a row, say lunch, dinner one day, and then lunch the next day keto. And then I might have, uh, you know, a a meal with 40 grams of carbs in it somehow, whether it's uh, risotto. So I'm tasting someone's risotto or, you know, or some gluten-free pasta or something like that. But it doesn't matter because I don't feel the difference. I don't, you know, I don't gain you know, extra weight. I don't, my, my insulin doesn't shoot through the sky. It's all from having developed this metabolic flexibility, which is what I teach and preach in, uh, in this book, uh, keto for life. 
And um, that's been the real revelation for me. That's when you say, what have I learned over the years? It really is that um, no matter what your way of eating is, you can develop this metabolic flexibility. And in so doing, uh, you can reduce your risk for uh, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, dementia, Alzheimer's. You can, you can increase your energy, you can maintain or build muscle mass. Uh, and most importantly, you can cruise through life without being beholden to some meal schedule, which I think is the single greatest freeing element uh, of what we do with metabolic flexibility. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What, uh, during which activities would, would you say it's more appropriate to be burning fat? And then when would, when would glucose be a more, uh, or sugar or, or starch be a more appropriate energy substrate? Well, I'd say most people are better off deriving most of their energy largely from fat. So whether you are a sedentary person who doesn't exercise a lot or whether you're somebody who is uh, you know, a marathon runner or a triathlete and ex exercising at a high level of aerobic output or whether you're in the gym lifting weights or doing explosive uh, ballistic you know, MMA type stuff, you're always better off getting most of your energy from fat when your heart rate is, say, below 100 beats a minute. Um, and as you get better and better at this metabolic flexibility thing, you derive a greater percentage of, of whatever energy requirements you have uh, from fat, even at higher heart rates. Now we're talking about 110, 120, 130 beats a minute, so that it's only the very high end of output that requires any sort of contribution from uh, from glycolytic sources, from from this you know, glucose glycogen uh, uh, pathway that would um, generally be associated with uh, uh, events or, or things that last, you know, a minute to four minutes or five minutes. So, uh, you know, it, it, along with an answer to your question, I mean, it's always best to develop this flexibility and it's always best to derive as much energy as you can uh, from fat up until a certain output. But then there's certain outputs at which you know, the, the, the fat burning system is going to have to tap out for a second and you're going to have to rely on glycogen, stored muscle glycogen. Um, but, you know, you have even if you're keto, you've you've got 400 grams of glycogen stored in your muscles and another 100 stored in your liver that you can that you can call upon. And the beauty of of the system of this metabolic flexibility system is that um, as you uh, become more adept at burning fat at higher and higher heart rates, you don't tap into that glycogen. So you don't hit the wall uh, as quickly as somebody say running right next to you alongside you at the same speed uh, might do. So one of the complaints I've gotten, not a complaint, but a comment or uh, you know a question regarding, well, what about for Olympic lifters or people who are doing um, you know uh, sparring in the gym, uh, doing bouts of three to five minutes of very high intense stuff, um, you know, isn't keto bad for them? And and uh, the answer is no, because you still develop this fat burning capability that allows you to recover between rounds quicker. And you still you never really you never lose the ability to burn to burn glucose, to burn to burn carbohydrate, to burn glycogen. You don't lose that ability just because you become good at burning fat. So it's it's ideal to have. Um, to be adept at, at, at all these different uh, fuel systems. And then if you were like preparing for a competition or a marathon, for example, where you need maybe a few minutes of uh, that glycolytic, you know, that, in, that intensity of, um, 
of might, I guess that you know that, yeah. that, that that having muscles full of glycogen might might lend you. Then you would add some some carbohydrates to your diet. Bingo! Yeah. It's just like you just carbo load the night before a race, and you just don't use you know high glycemic index carbs. You wouldn't just you know slam down a stack of pancakes with with maple syrup, but you you use you know you could take in. 150, 200 grams of, uh, of sweet potato or, or, or brown rice or even white rice for that matter. But, but, uh, you know, it's, it, and again, you don't lose all of that metabolic machinery that you built while you were building this ketogenic, uh, fat burning engine. You don't lose that with one meal. Right. And so there's a way to have it, have, have to utilize the training to reconfigure your fuel partitioning, to become metabolically flexible, and then also to fill up the glycogen stores just before the event. I love it. So, I mean, I mean, this concept of metabolic flexibility, I think it's so important, and, and this might be the first podcast where we've really sort of done a deep dive uh, into the concept and you know practical application. So, how do we how do we better procure metabolic flexibility for ourselves? I mean, from a, from both a dietary standpoint, and then also if you can just give us like. Maybe some work, you know, how we might cater our workouts to sure. to better supporting metabolic flexibility. Well, from a dietary standpoint, um, most of us are kind of hamstrung by the fact that we've been carbohydrate dependent our whole lives, and it's this access to a ready source of carbs at every corner that we turn, whether it's the refrigerator or the pantry or a store, at, you know, Seven uh, Eleven or or the grocery store, or whatever. There's always uh, you know, dense carbohydrates calling our name. And we were uh, told from, you know, early childhood, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And for most people, breakfast was, you know, cereal or pancakes or waffles or toast or, or, or you know, porridge or something that was high carb. Um, and then for lunch, it was, you know, um, a sandwich and some french fries or chips or whatever. And then for dinner, it's bread and, and maybe some pasta. And so there were always these, um, th this energy source carbohydrates coming into our bodies that the body would say, look, it's a lot of carbs and, uh, I could burn fat, you know, but you haven't really given me a reason to burn fat. So I'm just going to have to burn off all these, these carbs. And, and if you overeat the carbs, I'm going to store them as fat. And so we tended to, as a species and around the world with all this ready access to carbohydrates we tended to lose our fat burning machinery it tended to atrophy if you want to use the analogy that would happen with them like if you don't use a muscle uh, the body doesn't like to hang on to expensive machinery that it isn't using uh, and so in the event of uh, you know in the case of of eating a high carb diet you know, you eat carbs and and uh, because a lot of glucose and glycogen doesn't even require uh, um, you know, a, a, a mitochondrial input, it, the, the furnace where most of the fat burns called mitochondria and a lot of glucose and, and other, uh, sugars don't burn the mitochondria. They burn the cytosol of the cell. So you, you lose this, this metabolic machinery, these mitochondria. And over time, um, you, you get to the sense you get, a, get to a point where your body now becomes dependent on being refed a new source of fuel every couple of hours because your blood sugar drops and you feel kind of woozy because you don't have the glucose because uh, you burn it all off or you store it. So how do we, you know, how do we fix that? Well, we fix that by telling the body, hey, man, you're not going to be getting any glucose for a while. And so you're going to have to uh, tap into this DNA memory system, this recipe that we all have that that encourages the body to respond to a lack of carbohydrate 
by increasing enzyme systems that take fat out of storage um, and and uh, combust it. Uh, by increasing not only the number of mitochondria, which is where the fat burns, but also the efficiency of those mitochondria. It's called mitochondrial biogenesis. And by uh, this simple act of, of restricting carbohydrates uh, consistently for a period of time, and usually three weeks is like the ideal entry level point, the body gets this, it, it just, it's a beautiful system, and the body says, okay, if that's the way you're going to be, I'm going to build this fat-burning machinery. I'm going to build these mitochondria. I'm going to take this fat out of storage, and I'm going to combust it for fuel. And, and by the way, I'm going to take some of the fat, send it to the liver, turn it into ketones, which the brain can use as fuel in the absence of carbohydrate, in the absence of glucose, which is what the brain has been sort of used to burning. So over a relatively short period of time, you can adjust your energy systems to become uh, less carbohydrate dependent and much more efficient at burning fat. We call it uh, you know, fat adaptation and keto adaptation. And in so doing, the brain becomes more adept at burning ketones and prefers them actually over, over uh, glucose. Um, the muscles become much more uh, comfortable burning fat, even at high levels of output, like 80, 85 percent of your max output. The muscles can derive most of, of the energy from fat. And the dependence on glucose and, and, and carbohydrate as a source of that glucose goes way, way down. And at that point, you are becoming metabolically flexible. Now, the longer you spend... Um, withholding or restricting carbs, or it doesn't have to be even that. It could just be not eating. You can, you know, fast for 24 hours, uh, and the the effect will be similar. You'll you'll be giving your body the signals to upregulate enzyme systems, to increase the number of mitochondria, and to increase the efficiency of the mitochondria because the body gets this. It gets the signal that there's not going to be. Uh, carbohydrate present to use as, as a combustible fuel, but we have plenty of fat stored on all of us. That's what it's for. I mean, that's what, you know, we, we evolved with this amazingly beautiful, elegant system that has us wired to overeat <laughs> with the understanding that food is scarce because for the first two and a half million years of our existence, food was scarce. So we're wired to overeat. We have this beautiful system that then takes excess energy that we are consuming, excess food that we're consuming, and deposits it on our body. So instead of having to lug around f food with us, instead of having having to carry you know five gallon buckets of gasoline with us everywhere we go, we have deposited this energy on our hips, our thighs, our butt, our arms, and it is it's such a beautiful, efficient system for an organism that is otherwise not, uh, doesn't have access to food on a regular basis. Then when there's no food, you're able to take that fat out of storage, combust it for fuel, use the fat to, to, uh, to fuel the energy, the uh, muscles, and then use the ketones to fuel the brain. So the bad news is, well, the good news is we all have this system that allows us to store fat. The bad news is most of us haven't uh, trained the system that allows us to take the fat out of storage and combust it as fuel and, uh, and, and benefit from that. Super interesting. Can you walk us through what happens when we eat carbohydrates? Why is it that carbohydrates, um, can, when over-consumed, can, can prevent uh, or diminish our metabolic flexibility? 
Well, so carbohydrates, um, again, historically, carbohydrates were not that plentiful. Um, most of what our ancestors ate was uh, in the form of carbohydrate was probably a low glycemic index carb, you know, roots and shoots and tubers, uh, maybe 80 grams a day locked in a very fibrous matrix. So it, it was tough to, for the digestive system to extract um, and it didn't have much of an impact on, uh, on the blood glucose or on the secretion of uh, insulin, for instance. But every once in a while, we would come across, uh, you know, a, a, a source of carbohydrates, uh, say a stash of honey or something like that, or, or you know, some, some ripened fruit. And in that case, um, now we're, we're hit with a, with a large uh, amount of, of glucose, of carbohydrates in the form of, of sugar. Uh, and because sugar is, uh, it's a, it's an okay fuel, and you know, look, we've been we've been relying on glucose uh, for a long time as one of the fuels that we use to get us around. Um, but because the presence of it in the bloodstream can be toxic at certain levels above, uh, say, five or six grams, like a teaspoonful uh, at any one time in your in your bloodstream, there's only about a teaspoonful. Of, of actual sugar in your bloodstream. Crazy. That's how close closely it's monitored. So if it gets much above that, it becomes toxic and, and it can lead to um, uh, problems with, you know, cross-linking with proteins and uh, uh, it's highly inflammatory, uh, so it can cause inflammation. So a number of issues that can go uh, haywire with the body if the uh, if, if sugar gets too high in the bloodstream. So we have this mechanism where um, the pancreas secretes insulin uh, when the blood sugar gets too high. And it's a beautiful sort of balancing act where if your blood sugar gets too high from a meal, um, a signal goes to the pancreas to secrete insulin. The insulin then helps sequester the, the, this glucose out of the bloodstream and store it in the muscles. Now, if the muscles are full because uh, glucose goes into the muscles and becomes stored as glycogen in the muscles. And the muscles can only hold, I say only, they can hold about 400 grams total throughout the body uh, of, of muscle glycogen. Um, if the muscles are full, then, then the fallback position is to store it in the, in the fat cells. And so a lot of people who uh, eat a lot of sugar get fat because a, they're not burning off the glycogen in their muscles, so the muscles are full and the muscles are going, hey, we're going to become resistant to this call uh, signaling that insulin is giving us. We're going to become insulin resistant, and we're going to have you take that sugar and deposit it in the fat cells. And so the fat cells are readily able and, and available to take up this excess sugar, and I use sugar and glucose and glycogen sort of interchangeably. So um, that's how people, that's how a lot of people get fat. And then there's a point at which even the fat cells go, hey, 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 wait, 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 we're, you know, we don't even want anymore. Um, and so we're going to become resistant. And at that point, then the, now we get into problems. Then, then the blood sugar gets high enough that the insulin can't, um, can't scream loud enough at the cells to dispose of the glucose. And so the pancreas starts to try and pump out even more insulin. Uh, so the insulin levels are very high. But because it's not being heard, the, the cells are insulin insensitive, they're resistant to it. Um, the sugar builds up in the bloodstream and now we get the real issues of type two diabetes. We get the, uh, the glycation, you know, we get the, the, these reactions 
where the sugar basically, for lack of a better, you know, better term uh, here, clogs up uh, the circulation uh, because it's reacting with proteins and other parts of uh, other things that are in the bloodstream. So now you get the typical manifestation of of diabetics, which can be uh, loss of vision, um, loss of limbs because of circulation problems, pins and needles. Uh, and that's, you know, and it's a deadly disease. Uh, and, it's a, and it's a disease that I guess some, you know, I don't know what the number is right now, Max, you help me. 30 million, 35 million people uh, either have type 2 diabetes or, or are about to be diagnosed with it. So all of this goes back to carbohydrate management. Like you can, you can cure type 2 diabetes by cutting back on the types of carbohydrate that you eat and the timing of when you eat them. Uh, it's a, it's, I hate to use the term, but it's a ridiculous condition to have type 2 diabetes if you, if it can be so uh, managed, so well managed through an appropriate diet and appropriate use of exercise. Uh, so anyway, that's that's sort of the 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 insulin story, and that's why we get these blood sugar swings. So when we eat a high carbohydrate meal, um, we the blood sugar goes you know skyrockets and gets very high. If you're functioning well, the body says, hey, wait a minute, that's too much glucose, and so it secretes a lot of insulin. The insulin then almost overreacts and takes uh, way too much glucose out of the bloodstream uh, and puts it into either the fat cells or the muscle cells. And now because your blood sugar is so low, because the insulin has sort of overreacted to it, now you get hungry again, you know, two hours later or three hours later, and that's, that, that's what sort of uh, is typical of the standard American diet with these wild mood swings from one meal to the next, and why people get hangry when they um, skip a meal uh, because they've got a, a, a meeting is running late and they haven't had lunch yet, and they're getting hangry because their blood sugar is getting low. And the main thing that's happening here is because they have not built the metabolic flexibility, and all they know is how to burn sugar. They haven't learned how to burn fat. They haven't taught their body that it can exist quite nicely on ketones and fat. Um, then the brain panics and the brain says, oh my God, we're you know low blood sugar, we're gonna pass out, we're gonna die. Uh, so it then tells the, the adrenals to secrete adrenaline and cortisol and, and those are stress hormones. Uh, and so this whole cascade of hormonal um, you know, shitstorm happens because you overeat carbohydrate. Uh, and yet, you know, it's sort of a typical scenario that hundreds of millions of people do, not just on a daily basis, but on a meal to meal basis. All of that can be circumvented by developing this metabolic flexibility and understanding that not only do you not need carbohydrate to survive, you're better off eating as little carbohydrate as, as you're comfortable with uh, to thrive. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I think it's, it's, it's important to note that, um, you know, and you alluded to this, that, that, that insulin is a fat-sparing hormone. So whenever your insulin is elevated for any significant period of time, you're, you're not burning fat. So you're not allowing your body to burn through that fat. And this is also, I think, a great opportunity to talk about bioindividuality. And, and, you know, of course, you, all, you also alluded to, to this fact. But, you know, 100 grams of carbohydrates from food in you know, one person could, could have a dramatically different effect than it does in another person. So if you, for example, you know, if, you're, if you've just finished uh, a marathon, you know, full body workout and you've depleted your muscles of glycogen and you choose to have 100 grams of carbohydrates from, say, white rice, 
what's going to happen in the cascade that is then going to ensue in your body is going to be a lot different than if a if a if a desk jockey for example who doesn't you know exercise regularly is a little bit overweight has some visceral fat you know and has been sitting at their desk all day then goes and consumes the same 100 grams of carbohydrates so the the dose of carbohydrates from one person to the next and and the you know potential for damage or you know uh, whatever you know influence it might have on body composition is going to vary from one person to the next and so you have to you know you have to, I think, consume carbohydrates at a dose that are commensurate with uh, your health, your lifestyle, um, and and other factors, of course. Yeah, and your goals and your immediate goals. I mean, you say, well, right, like if, if I know I'm going to go to the track tomorrow and bang out, um, you know, 10 uh, quarters, um, I'm much more inclined to finish off my evening with – um, you know, 50 grams of something that's a little bit sweet and tasty and uh, I won't feel bad about. Um, or uh, conversely, if I hadn't done that and I go to the track and I do the work because I, I haven't done work like that for a couple of days. So I'm, I've, even though I'm, I'm keto, I'm still storing glycogen. I don't need to be consuming carbohydrates to store glycogen. It happens anyway. It just doesn't happen as quickly as if you carbo load, right? So I could finish the workout and go home and do the same thing. I could go home and uh, and, and consume 100 grams or 150 grams of carbs. White rice would be a good example. And have a uh, not like zero impact on my on how, feeling crappy or feeling you know or or storing it as fat it would all go to being stored in my in my muscles as glycogen right so you're right the bio individuality is one thing the history of the individual in terms of your training history the goals the immediate goals or what what you are going to do or what you just did all of this factor in and so at the end of the day, what I really what I really preach and teach is an intuitive way of eating that basically says, look, I don't have to count this stuff. I don't have to do the the uh, the micromanaging of uh, every 10 grams of carbs I take in. I just sort of understand that based on uh, when I'm eating, when I last ate, what my uh, current level of fitness is. Um, you know, <laughs> look, the, the, the hedonistic pleasure of the food I'm about to choose to eat or not eat, all these things factor in. Um, but if I, but, and if I'm metabolically flexible, none of this makes any, it's just like, who cares, mm -hmm. right? If I'm metabolically flexible, I don't get jitters and, uh, uh, you know, I don't, I don't start sweating, uh, before I go to bed because I made a bad, uh, uh, a choice in dessert. Well, I'll tell you what, if I do, if I have like 550 calories of a, of a, you know, triple chocolate, whatever. Yeah. That'll have an impact on me. But I'm saying, you know, if I have some, you know, uh, if I go off a little bit and have a slice of pizza or something that, that wasn't on my list of approved foods, it's not going to wreck my day and it's not going to wreck my night. Yeah. I love that. Speaking of calories, uh, you, you, you took aim recently in a tweet at um, the, the movement towards, you know, macro and calorie obsession um, that I think comes, you know, often from the fitness community. Uh, your tweet was, be more like kids in that kids are ignorant of calories. So do you ever, do you ever find calorie counting to be, you know, an appropriate uh, dietary strategy? Uh, the only time I find it appropriate is in the early days of, um, uh, of keto adaptation and I only I only find it appropriate in so far as uh, I would say 
generally don't count calories when you're becoming keto adapted, just don't go hungry. And so you might find yourself for a couple of days when you haven't built the metabolic machinery yet, and you're saying, okay, Mark said, you know, uh, I can't let myself go hungry, so here are the foods I can eat, and uh, you know, they're high fat, healthy fat foods, um, or they're protein based, uh, there's no sugar, um, and I can eat them whenever I want. And so a lot of people will say, you know, and I, I did the first two weeks, Mark, and I, I wasn't hungry, but I didn't lose any weight, at which point I would say, okay, so you become metabolically flexible, uh, you've built the metabolic machinery to burn fats now and to burn ketones. The problem is you're just supplying so much fuel that the body has no need to take it out of your own stores and burn that fuel. So let's take a look at, at how much you've been consuming, right? But one, And once you get that, the first uh, moment that, that most, well, with, what they'll get is, holy crap, I was, you know, in the interest of not going hungry, I was eating 4,200 calories a day and, you know, how can I? possibly burn off my own body fat uh, doing that. By the way, some of the early keto studies showed people eating 4,500 calories and not gaining weight. And that was that was early sort of uh, the, the likes of, of our buddy Jimmy Moore who would say, wow, that's, you know, that's amazing. You can eat 4,500 calories and not gain weight. The problem is you're not going to you're not going to burn off stored body fat that way. Right. So you'll, you can maintain your weight on that huge amount of input. Um, and you won't store it because you're not creating, you're not generating any insulin. Um, so through thermogenesis and whatever your body's, uh, uh, you know, thermogenic effect of food or running just a high temperature, your body will burn it off eventually. But but the real aha moment comes when you go, oh my God, do am I eating way too much food? Like, um, you know, 4,200 calories is is like that's probably twice more than twice what I eat in a day now. Uh, so that would be the only time I'd say counting calories is appropriate. Um, the other aha moment that most people who go keto realize is that three meals a day is just way too damn much food. Um, and I don't know if you're in that same space, but, um, most people who become fat adapted and keto adapted, uh, just it's typically two meals a day. And with some of them, it's one meal a day. And by the way, it's not it's not two meals a day with the equivalent of of three prior meals. It's two meals a day of, you know, of what you would have eaten had you had you um, had those regular meals. But without the third meal, I don't know if I'm making sense with that, but it's so people who are keto adapted find they, they literally thrive on 30 percent fewer calories than they thought they needed to get through a day. Yeah, I mean, keto is definitely, it's, it's powerful in terms of its hunger suppressing effects. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great way to calorie restrict without feeling the misery of calorie restriction. Yeah, and you don't, and again, you don't have to, so when you get to that point, you can, you can, you know, eyeball a plate of food and go, well, that's, that looks like a, you know, enough food to, to carry me over to the next meal, whenever that is. Uh, you're less inclined to say, well, it looks like it's about 475 calories over there and 325 calories there, and that adds up to, you know, wh whatever it adds up to in terms of the total for the day. You're much more inclined to just be uh, the intuitive eater that I want you to be, which is some days, look, some days you can have 4,000 calories. Some days don't eat any food. I mean, that was the old Art Devaney thing. He was like all about the fractal eating. Right? He says, some days I have lunch, some days I don't. Some days I have a big dinner, some days I have a small dinner. Some days I have three meals, some days I have no meals. I mean, it was like it's, and he said, and that's the human experience. That's how we evolve. We did not evolve 
with our ancestors saying, oh, it's 7.30, we gotta have breakfast. Oh, it's 12.30, we gotta have lunch. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's this construct of the industrial age. Actually, I guess it was farming that started the three meals a day because you had to feed the farm hands halfway through the, halfway through the morning or halfway through the day. Um, and we just sort of carried it over into an assumption that, well, that's, that's how we're designed. We're designed to have to have three meals a day. And, you know, if you go back to the 80s and 90s, the mantra was even five meals a day. It was like, you know, grazing. Humans are grazers, and we have to have five small meals. Don't go two and a half or three hours without eating something, especially without eating some carbohydrate, or else you'll cannibalize muscle tissue. You know, and, and now we know that that was... Uh, wholly inappropriate advice. Yeah, I mean, there, I've I've seen some studies where they found that people who eat more frequently, uh, there's an association between more frequent meals and higher BMI, which we know is an imperfect measure of uh, body composition, but it tends to be pretty accurate when you zoom out and you look at the population as a whole. So people that eat eat more frequently throughout the day tend to have bigger waistlines, bigger you know, and 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 bigger bodies in general. Um, well, that's because they're producing insulin every two hours. Yeah. You know, and, and because people who eat that way don't eat fat. They eat carbohydrate. Right. Um, if you ate fat, you couldn't eat fat every, every two or three hours throughout the day. You know, you couldn't really graze on fat that way. So you're eating carbohydrate, and now you're, you're promoting this insulin roller coaster up and down. And so anytime there's an excess of carbohydrate and the insulin is high, you're storing that extra calories as fat. So over time, you may go, well, I've been eating this way my whole life, and I only gained, you know, four pounds last year. Well, dude, four pounds every year for 10 years is 40 pounds. And, uh, you know, that can creep up on a lot of people pretty quickly. I'm with you. I eat two meals a day. But then I, I also find myself snacking quite a bit. Um, and I tend to reach for, you know, higher protein snacks, snacks that are more fat-based. What about you? Are you, are you? So you're on the two meal a day, and do you ever snack and also how do you handle your hardwired response that you know being human i'm sure you have it to foods that are hyper palatable you mentioned pizza and things like that but i mean how do you how do you handle yourself in environments where you're in close proximity to hyper palatable food well um i work out of my house uh most of the day so I'm, i've created an environment that i'm not um, I guess you could argue it's it's a horrible environment because the refrigerator is right around the corner. But but I don't surround myself with with foods that I don't you know that aren't on my list. So I'm not tempted by hyper palatability um, on a regular basis. At least when I'm home, uh, do I snack? Yeah, once in a while I snack, but I don't snack. Like I typically eat my first meal one or one thirty in the afternoon, uh, and then I might. But it's and it, by the way, it's not. It's become smaller and smaller. Like my. My what I guess we would call lunch, although it's I, I use it to break the fast, um, is is less and less of a full meal, partly because it's just what makes me comfortable, and and also because I know you know I'll be having a, a, a nice regular dinner, because uh, that's sort of my main sort of social event of the day is my dinner, um, say between sometimes between seven and eight o'clock, uh, and then that's it. So yeah, I might have. Um, Cheese uh, before dinner, you know, an hour before dinner, uh, that might be the kind of snack I would have. Um, cheese and, and maybe a glass of wine or something like that. But I don't really snack that much either. It's not, uh, it's not something that I feel compelled to do. And if I'm busy, uh, 
you know, I, I just noticed that there, there are days when uh, I wake up, have a cup of coffee and then uh, get to work and I'll look up and holy crap, it's two o'clock and I haven't eaten and I haven't worked out. And, and I, you know, maybe I should do one or the other and possibly both. But that's that's the metabolic flexibility that I talk about. It's like you don't you're, you're so good at burning your own stored body fat that you don't have to eat and you don't you're not driven by hunger and you're not driven by the metronomic, um, the, the rhythms of, uh, of somebody else's mealtime. Uh, so it's a, it's a very freeing kind of thing. I know you and I both know a number of people and probably one of my favorites is, is, uh, is Todd White, um, you know, at uh, dry farm wines. Todd's funny because he eats one meal a day. One and, meal a uh, day. And on, and early on I said, Todd, I said, cause he, and you know, Todd, he's fit, he's energetic, he's traveling around the world, sourcing all these great, paleo wines. Um, he's hosting events all the time. He, he's just, he's a dynamo. And, uh, early on I interviewed him. I said, Hey Todd, you know, uh, you only eat one meal a day. And he says, yeah, well, that's all I got time for. And that's all I'm hungry for. So what's, what's the problem? I've been keto for 10 years. So I go, well, you must have to be really mindful about what you eat for that one meal. Right. And I'm thinking, yeah, he's got to be mindful that he doesn't overeat, right. That he doesn't stuff himself. Hmm. And he says, yeah, I got to be mindful that I eat enough because it's one meal. So, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting how the hunger thing becomes, um, you know, we, we, we endow it with such power when it doesn't have to be that way. And, uh, and he's a good example of someone who just said, look, I, I eat when I'm hungry and he eats great food. I've been out to dinner with him many times and he is a connoisseur of food, right? He's a gourmet. Uh, he just doesn't need to eat three times a day to get that experience. I'd like to shadow him and see whether or not that's actually true. Because I, mean, <laughs> I, I feel like even if there was a study that came out, you know, like, which would never happen. But if there was like a long term randomized control trial that definitively found that eating one meal a day was the best way to eat for humans. I don't know if I would do it. I, I enjoy, well, so, I enjoy finishing, no, I, my, finishing my workout, going to get a bite, eating, you know, eating dinner with friends. It just seems I agree. No, I agree with you. I agree. So I, I go back to my point, which is, um, well, I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of fasting, right? I, I mean, I, I do, you know, compressed eating window. I don't call it fasting. And I can go a day and a half without eating. Um, and that's, you know, dinner one night to breakfast two days later. Um, my wife is on a seven day water fast as we speak. Uh, she went up to this uh, place about 50 miles up up the coast with uh, some friends of ours, and they're going to do a seven-day water fast. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't feel compelled to do that right now. Uh, I, you know, I, I enjoy. I can do three days, you know, uh, and maybe I'll do it one day. Maybe she'll come back and say it was, you know, life-changing. But for now, um, in agreeing with you, like I could do one meal a day. I've done it many times, but it's not. I like eating enough that I know I can, uh, that, I, that I, I want that hedonistic aspect of my life. I enjoy food. So that's why I have lunch and dinner as opposed to one meal a day. And like you said, even if, even if a randomized control, uh, uh, or a random control uh, trial said that, uh, there was, 
uh, greater benefit to eating one meal a day. I'm not sure I would for that <laughs> for that very reason. Yeah. Isn't there isn't there also something to be said because you've been an athlete your whole life and you know you're you're a figurehead in the in the fitness community um, and the and, and the, the specifically the the ancestral I guess where that the ancestral paleo world and the fitness community sort of overlap. Um, you're definitely a leader. Isn't there something to be to be said for uh, having a more even protein distribution throughout the day in terms of uh, gaining and maintaining muscle mass? That's a good question. And I, and I think the answer is no. Um, that's one of the things that I held on to for the longest time, this notion that, you know, that, um, muscle is precious. We work hard to maintain it. I mean, I'm a, what we call a hard gainer. So I work really hard to put it on and, and, and I don't want to lose it, which is one of the reasons I'm disinclined to do a seven day, uh, water fast at this point. Um, nevertheless, uh, as, as more and more research comes down the pipeline, I see that um, I don't think that we need as much protein as I assume we need, needed based on what I was reading over the, over the decades in the literature. Uh, I don't know what that number is, but I, I know it's not 150 grams a day. Like some people would say, well, you know, you need one uh, gram per pound of lean, lean body mass or something like that. I, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a huge number. Uh, and then some of the studies in, uh, uh, in long, long-term fasting of keto subjects has shown there is not a great loss of muscle mass uh, over, say, a five- or seven-day fast. Don D'Agostino, uh, you know, a mutual buddy of ours who has done a couple of these five-day fasts and then, and then finishes them up with, you know, pulling 515-pound uh, deadlifts ten times on the last day to prove that he didn't lose much of his strength, right? Um, but typically, if you, when you don't eat, um, when you go longer periods of time without eating and the body has become metabolically flexible and it is adept at taking fat out of uh, fat stores and combusting it and taking fat out of fat stores and sending some of it to the liver to become ketones to offset the need for uh, glucose, uh, you become a closed system. It's really interesting. If you, be, if you think about this, like you have this, like, and I'm like, I'm 170 pounds and I'm 10% body fat, so I have, you know, 17 pounds of fat, even though people look at me and go, you know, wait a minute, you don't have 17 pounds of fat. I do, I'm 10% body fat, that's just what the numbers say. So even assuming that seven of those 17 pounds are allocated toward sustaining life, Let's just say I have 10 pounds of excess fat that I can burn at any one point in time. That's 30,000 calories. That's enough to that's enough to walk 300 miles, right? So if you if I were to not eat for a period of days, my body would would just combust some of that uh, excess fat and and the muscle work that I, whatever muscular work I did, uh, whether it's just walking around the house, talking on the phone, or going for a, a long walk, or doing a, a mild workout that energy would come like 95% of it would come from the fat. I wouldn't need carbohydrate and the, the balance of it would come from the carbs that were naturally stored in my liver as a uh, liver glycogen or my muscles as muscle glycogen. Meanwhile, the liver under those conditions, the liver can produce up to 750 calories a day worth of ketones. Think about that. 750 calories a day worth of ketones. So that's enough to fuel the brain. Now some, some brain cells and some red blood cells do need glucose as a fuel, but the body has this mechanism where it can make glucose through gluconeogenesis from 
either the muscles from some amino acids that are in the muscles, but, but most importantly from the glycerol on a triglyceride molecule. So now you've got this system where a triglyceride molecule, the fatty acids get combusted uh, as fuel in the muscles. Some of them get sent to the liver to become ketones, which the brain can use as fuel. And then the glycerol becomes the backbone for making uh, glucose to make up for whatever glucose deficit there was. Now, such, that is such an awesome closed system that it, can, that it can survive for days, and in some cases, like weeks and weeks, without any input other than water, right? But the problem is you're gonna lose muscle. Well, one of the things that the body adapts to and, and has this upregulation that happens very quickly as a result of the, the ketones is there's a protein sparing effect. And all of these amino acids that we thought we needed to maintain muscle mass, that we thought we had to eat, that, to consume, but in fact, we're overeating, and then the body was having to literally deaminate them and piss them out in the urine, uh, it are now spared. And we have this, this protein sink within the body, this, this, this uh, amino acid sink where, where amino acids are recycled. And, and if they're not combusted, if they're not burned, and they're not pissed out in the urine, then we can actually reuse the amino acids and we can maintain muscle mass through this, uh, this loop. And, it, and, and it, so if you think of the body as a closed system for seven or eight days of fasting, if you do it right and if you go into it keto adapted uh, and fat adapted, you will not lose significant muscle mass. It's, a, it's an amazing system and that's, it's what we evolved to survive millions of years of harsh environments. We just never tap into it. It's amazing, it's so elegant, uh, elegant and eloquently said. Um, what about, so I mean, so we're covered when it comes to losing muscle mass, uh, but what about when trying to gain um, muscle mass? I mean, would you say that that's a, cause you know, so, I mean, a lot of people are interested in weight loss, but I do get a, a, you know, a, a significant amount of people that, always a, that are asking about weight gain and muscle gain and things like that. Would you say it's better then to um, increase protein or to eat sure. more, more frequently yeah. throughout the day? Or? Well, I don't know about, I would say increasing protein, um, but, but to what level? I mean, anything more than, a, you know, if you're a six foot guy and you weigh 160 pounds and you're trying to put on, you know, 15 pounds of muscle and get up to 175. And by the way, given those constraints, that's probably the biggest you're ever gonna get. If you're, if you're six feet tall and weigh 160 now, 165 is probably, um, you know, putting on 15 pounds of muscle is, is a tough call. Um, some, of the, some of the weight that you put on is gonna be, you know, fat that goes along with it, which if, if, that's, if you're okay with that, that's fine. But theoretically, most people just wanna put on, you know, when they wanna gain weight, they wanna gain mostly muscle. They wanna, they wanna be, you know, fat. So if you said, well, okay, so that six foot guy, I mean, you know, I would not have him consume more than, uh, more than 150 grams of protein in a day. And so that might look like uh, three, you know, three high protein, three meals of 15, 50 uh, grams of protein at each meal. Uh, and, you know, probably some carbohydrate too. But it doesn't, it doesn't have to be there. If you follow, uh, you know, Luis Villaseñor at Keto Games, he's all about being, um, being ketogenic and putting on muscle uh, by consuming a low carb diet. So he would say, 
okay, so because you're eating low carb, you're trying to put on weight, and you can eat, you know, then if you take in 150 or 200 grams of protein, what will happen is the excess protein that isn't being used as uh, to, to, to repair the muscle tissue that you have stressed from working out hard, uh, that excess protein will just be used to, to create uh, glucose. So it's not like you're going to incorporate 200 grams of protein every day into your muscles because you chose to eat a lot of protein and you want to gain weight. Uh, there's a limit at which the body will take it in. Uh, the limit is partly defined by uh, you know your age, partly defined by your uh, your 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 parents, you know your familial uh, DNA, uh, your predisposition being an ectomorph, a mesomorph, or an endomorph, um, and and. Oh, and some of it largely is defined by the choice of work that you're doing, uh, because you can't build muscle without without doing the kind of work that prompts the body to go, whoa, if this guy is going to be trying to lift this much weight in the future, I have to get stronger. I mean, it's literally a it's a genetic it's an epigenetic signaling that causes uh, anabolism or anabolic mechanisms to take place. And you can't just will that. You have to do the work in the gym to do that. And what does that work look like? Well, it's not just doing curls because you want big biceps. For most people, um, probably the single greatest exercise you can do if you're trying to get big arms is to do hex bar deadlifts. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a core activity. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know if you know what the hex bar is, but you know, it's, a, it's basically doing deadlifts, you know, in a, in a kinder, gentler fashion. But you do heavy, heavy lifting, and it sort of combines a squat with a, with a deadlift. And you say, well, what would that do for my arms? Well, what it does is it's such an, an assault on the body and all of the large muscles of the core and the, and the glutes and the thighs and it's pulling on the shoulders uh, and the lower back that it's prompting the body to secrete a pulse of testosterone and growth hormone. And those are the hormones that are anabolic that then cause the work you do on the pull-ups and the bicep machine to give you the bigger guns. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. So that's why, I mean, doing squats, deadlifts, as you mentioned. I've never done a hex bar deadlift, but I've done uh, stiff-legged deadlifts. I do Romanian deadlifts and stiff-legged deadlifts. Very yeah, those are a little dangerous for me. I don't, I don't like those as much. They don't hurt well, my they, back They're okay. Much. By the way, they're okay because unless you do, you know, but are you doing 300 pounds with them? No, no, no. I don't do that. I don't, I can't. That's what I mean. Yeah. That's what I mean. yeah so okay. you're doing lightweight of Romanian deadlifts, which is good for your hamstrings. And, yeah. you know, but I'm just saying, um, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, that you go do this, but like you should try to experiment with a hex bar deadlift to see what it's like. It's pretty, uh, again, it's just this, this way of getting the benefit, the maximum benefit of, of a, uh, overloaded, uh, centralized lift that not only, uh, builds your legs, but but de facto creates bigger arms because because of the overall effect of the anabolic uh, the the anabolic effect of this single lift. Yeah, it's amazing. That's why you have to. I mean, fellas, you got to work your legs. I mean, yeah. w- women know this, um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of guys. Whether there's that st- there's that caricature, right? Like the guy who's like you know big. Above the waist, skip, skip leg day, yeah, yeah, just always skipping leg day. Um, 
So uh, we're almost out of time, but one last thing I want to touch on in your book, Keto for Life, you go into the difference between chronological age and biological and psychological age. So this is a really cool topic, and I'd love if we could just kind of touch on the differences between those three, if, if we can, before we take off. Uh, sure. So, so you know, your, your chronological age is, you know, that's, that's my birthday coming up, and I'm going to be whatever I'm going to be, and that's how old I am. And, you know, a lot of people um, try to adhere to that, but it really has no... Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's good for uh, achieving certain milestones like being able to drink alcohol or vote uh, or uh, retire. But beyond that, it really doesn't have any basis in, uh, in the reality of, of who, who you are as, a, as, a, as an individual. Um, the chronological, uh, uh, excuse me, the biological age, uh, much more significant, like, uh, you know, how old do you really, uh, is your body in terms of, of its aging mechanism? So how much damage have you done through, uh, uh, inappropriate dietary choices, shall we say, to be fair, or lack of exercise, um, or through, uh, mismanagement of stress, you know, how, how much, uh, inflammation has occurred in your body as a result of these lifestyle factors over which you have control, but over which most people don't exert control. They often assume that uh, their, their biological age is entirely an artifact or an effect of uh, their parental, you know, their familial DNA. Like my, my dad died at you know, 58 and so I'm doomed to die at 58 or my uncle had a heart attack and my dad had a heart attack at 62. And so that's, that's, that's what awaits me. Those are, um, people who are taking, uh, both the, the, the chronological age, which is a finite number and, and then superimposing, uh, some biology over that to say, well, I'm, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm doomed because that's what happens in my family. When in fact, um, knowing that that's what happened to your father and that's what happened to your uncle um, might be the best things that ever happened to you because now you can take action. Now you more than most need to pay attention to what you eat or to how you exercise. Um, you know, we talk about um, the, the biological age uh, of, of a generation of runners, uh, my, my generation, which overtrained and, and just did you know, uh, huge amounts of damage to their to their joints and their hearts, while chasing longevity. Ironically, um, you know that's the that's the real sad part about this is we were all trying to do the right thing. Um, I have premature ventricular contractions in my heart. I, I um, assuming that any amount of exercise that I ever did was good for me, and the more I did, the better. And the and the and the harder I did it, the better. I ran my heart rate up to max three or four days a week for 30 years. And as a result, I have a thickened left ventricle, uh, and I and I I take uh, meds to control my my ventricular contractions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a lucky one because I have about two million other friends who, uh, who who train for 20 years as marathoners or triathletes or cyclists who have AFib. AFib is an epidemic among uh, among guys my age who overtrain for a long time. Uh, all of these, you know, are are. Um, they're physical manifestations that that increase your your age. Um, they they literally make you older than you are, make you more prone to uh, risk for uh, 
heart disease, heart attacks, uh, cancer, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the, that's that. And then your mental age is like, um, you know, that's how old do you feel? And I'm like, well, I feel like I'm, my problem is I felt like I was 17 since I was 17. So, um, but that might be, uh, one of the single greatest determinants, uh, of longevity. Uh, you know, how, how is your brain wired in terms of your outlook uh, on life with respect to where you stand in this world. If you, if you fancy yourself uh, a decrepit old person uh, who's immobile, uh, who doesn't have very good memory, uh, whose digestive tract is, is failing, uh, then you, you know, part of you is gonna manifest that. So I try to hang out with uh, young people. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the oldest guy in my Frisbee group. Um, there's one guy maybe in his late 40s. I'm 66. And then everybody else is in their 20s and 30s, right? And, and I'm like, I feel like I can keep up with them. Maybe not. If you saw the videos, maybe it'd be a different uh, story. But I sure as hell feel like I can, I can keep up with those guys on a, in a two-hour game of ultimate um, with, a, with a sprint to the end zone. Um, I, I enjoy, uh, rap music. I enjoy EDM. I enjoy, you know, all forms of music. Um, I try to keep up with what's going on with, uh, with the world of, uh, young artists, um, and with my children's millennial friends, um, which isn't to say that I don't hang out with people my own age, but, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I, I fancy myself, um, youthful in spirit and I want to maintain that. Uh, and as you know, people like Tony Robbins will say, you know, you're the average of the five people you hang out with the most. Um, so I make sure a lot of those people are really young. So. I love that. There's a guy, there's a guy that uh, I've become good friends with who uh, frequents this cafe that I eat at a lot in Los Angeles and his name is Al and he's like an 88 year old guy. He's like a very old guy, lives by himself, um, but he hangs out and all of his friends are younger people. And he, you know, I've had, I've had a few heart-to-hearts with him where he feels like, you know, you know feeling a part of this community, um, you know, and being, being around people who are so young and excited about life and don't feel resigned the way so many of his peers, you know, I mean, so many, so many other people his age do. I mean, he doesn't even hang out with those kinds of people because it's just so draining from a spiritual standpoint. Um, that it enlivens him in so many ways. And so he's, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a good friend of mine. He's, he's my oldest friend. He's 88. But, uh, but it's definitely, um, we, have a, we, we have like a mutual, we, it's a mutually beneficial relationship because I think Absolutely. That, no, it's a two-way street because, yeah. you know, uh, I fancy myself a mentor to some of these younger people. Of course you and, are. And, and, I, and I feel like they need it too. I mean, you know, I don't feel like they need it, but I feel like it's beneficial to them and they want it. Right. So it, 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 as much energy as I get from from them and from hanging out and from their youthful exuberance and from their silly uh, millennial jokes and their and their fantastic uh, uh, music, uh, you know, they get some words of of uh, experience <laughs> and, and wisdom from me. So it's a, a but and that but that's look, that's the sense of community that I talk about in my book uh, beyond just the, you know, the mental age and how do you feel this uh, this community, this this. This concept of um, of communication that we seem to have again ceded control over to devices, which I just absolutely hate. I think it's 
it's headed in a, in a, in a really bad direction if we don't put the brakes on it soon. So the one-on-one, the face-to-face, um, uh, gatherings, all of those are not just um, fun and, uh, and, and give me energy. Um, they're also crucial to uh, the you know, sort of social aspect of who we are as, as humans. Couldn't agree more. Well, Mark, you're a mentor to me, so uh, I don't, <laughs> for what, take that for whatever it's worth. Um, Thank you. But we're just about out of time, so I've got one last question for you that gets asked everybody who's on the show. But before we get to that, how can listeners connect with you over social media, and where can they pick up your new book? Uh, so the new book is available everywhere. Everywhere fine books are sold, you know, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, and so on. Um, it's Keto for Life. Um, you can look it up online as well, uh, get a synopsis of it. And uh, Mark Staley Apple is the blog. It's been around since 2006. Uh, write an article there every day uh, for the last um, 14 years. And uh, Mark Sisson Primal is my Instagram handle. I'm trying to wean myself off of that so uh, there won't be as many shirtless shots this year as in the past. But uh, <laughs> anyway. Oh, man. Yeah. I was going to say, well, the, the ladies are going are gonna to lament that, but you're, yeah. you're married yeah. and you know, you're taking yeah. care of Yeah, exactly. Um, so. Well, cool. Thank you for your time. The last question uh, that everyone on The Genius Life gets asked is, what does it mean to you to live a genius life? Um, it means having an impact, uh, a meaningful impact in the lives of others. Full stop. That's it. Wow. That's yeah. Damn. Well, that was, I, I like that and I, I appreciate that. And I, uh, I would echo those same thoughts. Well, thank you for your time. Um, this was awesome. You guys check out Mark's new book, follow him on social media. He's the man. And as always, I value your time and attention. Take a moment to share this episode of the show. I would really appreciate that. And uh, text me your thoughts of what you thought about it. I'm now taking text messages. You can send uh, feedback on this episode or any others. I would love to hear from you. My number, if you live in the U.S. or Canada, it's 310-299-9401. And I will talk to you soon. Peace. Thanks, Max.